this isn't fun, but we need to talk. Uh, <clears throat> on top of that, it's a heavy week. Some of you might know um, that recently the Southern Baptist Convention had a report about sexual abuse that came out. The Catholic Church just had a huge meeting of bishops about sexual abuse. One of the highest ranking men in the church, uh, number three in the Vatican, was just convicted and imprisoned for sexual abuse. Um, it's not even just abuse stuff, like just sex as a, as a cultural topic is huge. The United Methodist Church today had a massive decision, and church, the church is almost certainly going to split, um, which is huge. Uh, and it's not just the church, right? It's worse when it's the church, because the church ought to be better, friends. Uh, I have this sort of um, tension anytime we start comparing the church to the world, because there, there's a defensive mechanism in me because of my family, wanting to defend my family or something, to say like, but they're not any better. We shouldn't be fighting to be equal, friends. Does that make sense? Like the church ought to be so much better at marriage, ought to be so much better at raising our kids, ought to be so much better at our, with our ethics, ought to be so much better with our money, ought to be so much better with our time. That said, the world's not any better. Uh, if you pay attention to the news, um, the owner of the New England Patriots this last week was paying, got caught paying for sex in Florida, and there's, there's this realization that came out again. This happens all the time, but because we only spent eight seconds on average on our news feed looking at news articles, nothing sticks. But, um, but just how common and prevalent the sex trade is here in the States. Another report just came out today, today, that in the past few years, there have been more than 4,500 reports of sexual abuse among immigrant minors held in custody at our country. This evil is everywhere. 15 to 17,000 people are trafficked in the U.S. every year. Marriages are falling apart. Sexual abuse is rampant. Statistically, 25 to 30 people in this room statistically will have experienced sexual abuse personally, been victims of sexual assault. The porn industry generates between 90 and $100 billion per year, which is more than the NFL, the MLB, and the NBA make combined. And that is probably the scariest number for me because of this, because there's vested interest in keeping it going when there's that much money involved. The more that we look at porn, the more we clamor for uninhibited sex. The more someone somewhere is making money. If you, uh, was, was, it, was it here when I was talking about, how, I mean, where was I? Oh, at the winter retreat. If you're at the winter retreat, I was um, sharing a story of, uh, of a sort of a tech giant at a big uh, gathering of, um, of marketing folks who work for uh, Fortune 500 companies, a lot of Silicon Valley companies. Um, and he asked a room of 200 people who do a lot of like marketing and design work for these big companies. said, how many of you, raise your hand if you want to live in the world that you are helping to make. Out of 250 people, not a single one raised their hand. What these people know, what people that work in the porn industry know, is that you are actually not unique. We, we know how to calculate and generate your desires. We know, how to, we, we know exactly what triggers all of you, and we can make it happen. And if you know anything about the statistics, porn in and of itself is incredibly dangerous, and I'm, uh, I don't know how much we get to talk about it tonight. Um, I don't really want to talk about it, but I feel like we ought to talk about it. Anyway, uh, it is in and of itself a tremendous evil, friends. A tremendous evil. It's not ambiguous. Porn is evil. It's evil. I, th I might have shared this last week. I remember when I was in college, uh, and I, st I just started following Jesus in college, and we would talk about things like pornography, masturbation, these kinds of things. And I remember at that time, we were, we were wrestling with, like, what to, what to do about this sort of thing. Now, I don't even hear people talk about it, especially amongst men, because it's a foregone conclusion that everybody does it, and there's nothing we can do about it. 
And in and of itself, it's evil, but it also is a sort of gateway into everything else. If the porn industry went under, everything that it's built, that's built on top of it would crumble as well. When I was in college, if I wanted to look at porn, I had to go buy a magazine <laughs> uh, or rent a VHS tape to look at pornography. And if I wanted to view it, I had to view it on a big screen in a public place. Silence. Uh, and and, and uh, now it just seems to me like in every single shadow of your life, it's available to you. And it's seemingly free, right? It just costs your soul, but we're not going to ask you for any money up front. Anyway, I'm pretty fired up about this tonight because I want the world to change, friends. I don't want this to be our legacy. I don't want my kids to share the same statistics. I want you and me to do better, to confess our sin, to repent, to change, to not buy into a culture that demands the slavery of people trafficked, that harms children, and that traps and addicts the hungers and bodies of so many of us in this room, that wrecks marriages. It's heavy tonight. Um... I can't talk about all this stuff, okay? I can't talk about all this stuff. We're going to have to hone in on a couple of things. Um, we'll see how this goes, but we're going to talk about sex, sexual morality, and hope for change in Jesus somehow, Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, um, send your spirit, have mercy upon us. Um, may your word be a Trojan horse. May it get past our defenses um, and, and do battle with, with uh, things inside of us that, that wage war against truth and love. miraculously, God, give us hope. We pray against the evil forces that are at work in the dark places in this world. We pray for victims everywhere. We pray for people who've been hurt by sexual sin. We ask for healing for the ways we have been hurt and wounded by sexual sin. Lord, we pray for hope. We pray for hope. We pray for hope. And I pray that as we talk about what your scriptures have to say about sex and how harsh you are about sexual immorality, I pray that it would actually give us hope that the God who sits on the throne has a better way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, uh, if you were here, we, taught, we read the Song of Songs. I read the whole thing. <laughs> so if you weren't here, uh, man, you missed out. Uh, uh, if you remember that, um, I, I, actually, if you were here, I'm assuming you do remember it because it was probably hotter than, you know, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga last night. Woo! Uh, yeah, it's Song of Songs, though. Um, so Song of Songs, Keely, if you put up chapter 8, verse 6, you might remember this as, as one of the main verses we sort of teased out of that, um, where the woman says, <coughs> set, she's talking to the man that she uh, loves and has sexual desire for, um, set me as a seal on your heart as a seal on your arm. For strong as death is love, fierce as the grave is its spark, or sheol is its, its sparks are fiery sparks, a fearsome flame, she says. So first of all, if you were here last week, we learned that sexual desire is good, that sex is good, that God made it good. A whole book of the Bible, pretty much right in the middle of it, is a celebration of the sexual desire between a man and a woman. It's good. And it's powerful. God made this good thing pleasurable. He made it something which binds two people together and renews their binding together. 
something which naturally generates life. It's so powerful that the woman in the Song of Songs says, it's strong as death and it's strong as the grave. She compares it to a raging fire with sparks flying off of it. We feel it. That's why Tinder named its company Tinder, by the way, which I find a tremendous irony. It's so powerful, she says, to, she said, or she, so powerful, she says to her man, that there must be commitment between us. For you to arouse this sexual love in me, there must be connect, a commitment between us. Don't you awaken this unless you put me as a seal on your arm, and I put you as a seal on mine. This fire is so powerful that it needs a safe place to burn. And tonight we're talking about what happens when that fire starts burning out of the fireplace. <laughs> uh, Listen to what the wisdom writer in the Proverbs says about sex outside of the context of marriage. Uh, Keely, if you would, Proverbs 6, 27 through 30. And friends, if you don't um, have the Bible memorized, I encourage you to bring it so you could get familiar with it in this context. Um, uh, can, can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch fire? The ESV says, can a man hold a fire next to his chest and not get burned? What is so good and life-giving in the fireplace is terrible and brings death when it's out of control, when it catches onto the drapes, when it catches on the rug. I know that many of us in this room have experienced the power of this fire outside of the fireplace. And it's destroyed things we love and left many of us with wounds and scars. So much so, and this was so heavy on my heart last week, that when I say sex is good, many of us have such a hard time believing that. Many of us have experienced such damage and such wounding with regards to sex that it's, it's unfathomable for us to imagine it being good, and it makes it hard for us even, even I'll, I'll touch on this later today, it's a huge theme in the biblical story that you should know about, but it even sometimes makes it hard for us to even believe that the body itself is good and that we will live forever in resurrected bodies in Jesus Christ because of the ways in which we have been wounded sexually. It's hard for us to believe some of these things are good. <clears throat> the very thing that was intended to be pleasurable, when it's misused, it wrecks pleasure. The very thing that unites people when it's misused isolates and separates people from each other. The very thing that was intended to produce life, when it's misused, it creates death. The very thing that is meant to be a picture of God or of God's love, when it's misused, becomes a picture of hell. This is what happens when you take fire out of the fireplace. Lord have mercy. Uh, uh, the main passage of Scripture we'll be looking at tonight is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Keely, if you go there. Um, this, this is loaded. Oh, goodness, this is loaded. We'll see how much context I give you as we read it. So this is chapter 6. Uh, we'll be looking at mostly verses 12 through verses 20. Um, if you want to take notes or, or follow along. Um, you, you say, Paul says to the, the people in Corinth, right? So the letter to 1 Corinthians is called, it's actually called 1 Corinthians because it's the first letter that we have to a, a, a church at a town called Corinth and the people were called Corinthians. Um, and so Paul's talking to the Corinthians 
Uh, I guess I will give you context. Uh, he, he started this church, lived there for quite a long time, um, and we know of a number of letters that he received and wrote back, back and forth to. This letter is actually a response to a letter he received. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll find all of these moments where Paul says this. He says, um, uh, in respo- essentially, in response to what you wrote me, I have this to say, and he begins to talk about stuff. And so there's these different sort of themes as they go throughout the letter, because the people in Corinth wrote this guy who started the church, this person they look up to in some ways, they, they, they also uh, seem to not like in, in some ways, if you read 2 Corinthians, um, they, they had all these questions for him and comments for him, and he's responding to them, right? And so here he says, you say, and, and it's in quotes, in, in Greek it's not, but we know that the, the quotes existed, something like this. Paul says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. In other words, the Corinthians are saying, hey, we're allowed to do anything. And Paul says, well, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Some of your Bible translations would say everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. You say everything's permissible now. In Christ, everything's permissible. And Paul says, yeah, but not everything's beneficial. And even though I am allowed to do anything, now Paul's being sarcastic, right? Uh, Even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies, and God will raise us from the dead by His power just as He raised the Lord from the dead. Okay, let's, let's keep this up just for a minute, Keely, would you? I'm gonna, uh, we're going to break down some of this. All right, so check it out. When you begin to get a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, you're going to discover that God in Jesus has forgiven you and set you free and you can't earn it and there's nothing you could do to separate, be separated from it. It's crazy, so crazy that it's really common for new followers of Jesus to get a little wild. It's like uh, getting a new set of wheels, which is what I would have called it, I guess. Uh, or, or having access to a, a phone, I guess. I don't know. Um, that's your own for like the very first time. I, I missed that sort of adolescent stage or whatever, but, um, or, or being able to date or drink, right? Anything, uh, you, you know, that, that, that's um, powerful and, and, and new and freeing. When that happens in your life, there's this desire that many of us have to test it out, to test the limits of these things, to see what we can do. And pretty quickly, you need someone in your life who can come along and say, hey, I know it's really, really cool to drive now, I know it's really, really cool that you can watch anything you want now. I know it's really cool that you can drink now, whatever it is. But just because you can do it doesn't mean that that's good for you. Just because you have freedom doesn't mean that everything is actually good for you. Do you see that? When you realize that you don't need to, for example, be a virgin for God to love you, that doesn't mean sex is really good for you right now. So somehow, probably because of what Paul had been teaching the last time he was with the Corinthians, they'd adopted this attitude that they were allowed to do anything. And so he, he quotes them, and you see that he quotes them, right? You say, I'm allowed to do anything. And Paul says, but not everything is good for you. So check this, because I, I could kind of almost stop the sermon on this whole point, but it, it's, uh, I, I almost skipped it, but it's really good, right? How many of us get hung up on this difference? We are so, like, like they say, I'm allowed to do anything. And Paul says not everything is really good for you. How many of us get caught up on this difference? We're so worried about our rights. Our rights, what we're allowed to do, that we don't ask what we ought to do. We don't ask what's good for us or for others. We want to know what we can get away with, not what will bring life. We want to know what the rules are for the sake of our own limits, 
We're not interested in what freedoms we have that we might use them to love others. Do you see that difference? Okay, you're allowed to do it. And Paul is like, you're a follower of Jesus. Why are you so concerned with what you're allowed to do anymore? Didn't we talk about love? Why are you so concerned with what you're allowed, with your rights? Paul would later say in this very same letter, I gave up my rights for your sake. Though I'm free and belong to everyone, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul would say. Do you see this difference here? Paul flips the grid on its head. They're worried about freedom. Paul's worried about good. And in an ironic twist, he says, though I can't in fact do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. What you think, Corinthians, is an expression of your freedom is in fact enslaving you. How many of us are enslaved to things that we use to express our independence? Drinks, attention, sex, and so on. Whatever you mean by Corinthians, by freedom, Corinthians, is actually a way by which you become enslaved. But he's just getting started, right? So he, he said that, and then he says, You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies are made for sexual immorality. Do, do you remember the ACT word association things? Keely, did I give you that one? There's like a little word association thing. Yeah. Do you remember these from the ACTs? Is that stressing you out? Uh, okay. So your stomach is to food. Is this actually how it went? I don't know. Is this the word? I, don't, I didn't like look up how to do a word association. It just, so call it whatever you want. Uh, your stomach is to food as your body is to blank. As your body is to blank. So here's how the Corinthians were answering sex. Your stomach is to food as your body is to sex. My stomach hungers. This is my stomach. My stomach hungers. And I think you guys are like so desperate to laugh in this sermon. Like I can say anything and you'll laugh. It's great. Uh, my stomach hungers and I feed it food. My body hungers for sex. I feed it sex, right? I mean, like it's that, that's, that's the association. That's like what we're supposed to do. Paul says, no, your sexual desire is not like your bodily hunger. It's not simply a craving that you need to satisfy. It's not. You know how Paul fills in that blank? <laughs> Let's go, if you go, actually don't go back, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, is to the Lord. That's how he fills it. Your stomach is to food as your body is to the Lord? Like, will you go back to the uh, slide right before? Please. Pretty, please. There we go. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, I can't get my shadow that high. Um, it's like four lines up from the bottom. That, that, or, or we'll start at the end of the quote over here to the right. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And our bodies will raise up, he even says. So get this. They had just bought into the culture, hook, line, and sinker, that their body is just a temporary thing. It's a rental car. It's just something that we live in, and it has desires. Today, we, 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 have, we have come so far in 2,000 years that we say our body has needs. Same thing. And since your body doesn't really matter in the end anyway, since all that really matters is your soul, which is not biblical at all, just feed your body what it wants. It doesn't even matter that much. That's what the culture teaches both then and now. Paul says, no, your body is so much more than that. In fact, your body, in the way Paul and Jesus and the authors of the Old Testament use the word, when they use the word body, 
Do you know what they're referring to every time they're talking about your body? They're referring to you. All of you, all of you. Everything you are exists as within and, and in a part of and in, in, in integration with your body. Your body isn't just a part of you. Biblically, it is you. Which is why it's so significant. One of the many reasons why it's so... Because, there's, God, there's many. We should talk about this this semester. There's so many reasons why it's so exciting to imagine our bodies being resurrected. And you, your body, you were not made for sexual immorality. You were made for relationship. You were made for the Lord. You matter, and because you matter, your body matters. And when your body matters, you treat it differently. What you need to see here is that Paul has a higher view of the body than the Corinthians do. He has a higher view of the body than we do. I watched a show on Netflix that I can't possibly recommend. Um... And potentially in light of a sermon like this, I shouldn't even watch it. I don't know. It's called Altered Carbon. And it's a, uh, it's, 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 it's a show that makes me feel totally gross. And I figured out why just a couple episodes in. Because it's a sci-fi show. I love sci-fi shows. I'll watch, I'm a sucker for anything sci-fi. Um, and uh, mostly after talking about really deep things all day, I don't want to watch This Is Us when I go home. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I just want anything that's like escape. Uh, uh, in any case, this show, it's really um, that the concept is that very wealthy people, it deals with a class system, sort of a privilege system, where the more money you have, the more you could do this. But very wealthy people can download all of their, their, their who they are onto like a hard drive. And then you could buy a body and then just insert it into the back of the neck. And so when that body gets old, you can then discard it and buy a new one. Of course, if you're really poor, you can't buy a new body. And so the people that have money are able to continue to, to, to be to increasingly the 1% gap is huge. Does that make sense? Because they're living longer and longer, generating more and more wealth, and everybody who doesn't have money keeps dying. And so whatever, it's this. But that's the world they live in. Well, now imagine, and they, actually the word for bodies and altered carbon, they've got to be dangerous. This is dangerous because it's not in my notes, and so we'll see how long this takes. Uh, they actually call bodies and altered carbon sleeves. Sleeves. It's just, it's a rental car. It's just this, this, this vehicle for who you are. Well, you know why I feel so gross watching that movie? Because how do you begin to treat your body if that's what you think it is? If I could just get a new one, if this is just throwaway, if this isn't me, I'm, I'm somewhere, somewhere in here, and if I could just figure out how to download it onto like a disk or a, a hard drive, and we could swap it around, do I even care about this body anymore? No, I drive it like I stole it, right? And I started realizing, oh my gosh, the reason why I can't, why this show gets under my skin, pun intended, uh, more than about any show I've ever watched is because of how antithetical it is to the good news that Jesus Christ brings. To even the, the good news that the Hebrews brought, that when God made everything, you know what he said? It's good. He said it's good. And I watched this show and I'm like, they don't believe that bodies are good and what is more you than your body, friends? This unique thing which can't be duplicated. My wife is an identical twin and she is different than her sister. Now i got to find my notes. Paul has a higher view of the body than we do. There we go. He continues. Um, we can go, would you go to the next verse, uh, please? Um, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of, are part of Christ's? 
Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her? Why? Because the Scriptures tell us that two are united into one. But the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. All right, so your bodies are important. We'll walk through this. Your bodies are important. What's more, they're a part of Christ. Should you take a part of Christ and join it with a prostitute? Should you join yourself to Christ and then, being united with Him, commit sexual immorality? Then he quotes Genesis 2, the the gold mine of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, to help them remember the power and the effect of sex. It makes one of two. We're going to talk more about that next week. But there is this mysterious union that happens in sex. And if you are in Christ and commit sexual immorality, think of what you are trying to unite together. And it may be why it is uniquely revolting for us when we hear about communities of God's people complicit in sexual immorality. Paul says, you should remember that you are one with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says in the next verse, would you go to the next section here? Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Run from sexual sin. Run from it. For sexual immorality is a sin against your very body, your very being, the very body of Christ I share fellowship with, your very spouse if you're married, you and anything you're united with. Sexual immorality is a sin against your body. Run from it. Uh, I'm going to read this. I don't know how long ago it was typed, but it's pretty great. From a guy named John Acuff. Listen. When I first started dealing with the idea that lust had a chokehold on me, I didn't cancel my magazine subscriptions, so he's he's my age. Uh, I still got GQ and Esquire and about a dozen other men's magazines, quote, this is what they exist for, friends. That is probably what the women's magazines do too, I don't know, but that essentially continued to be, interesting, Tinder for an already blazing issue in my heart. I didn't run from temptation. I hung out with it. (laughs) But now I think about it, now that I think about it, I wish I had reacted to temptation like my friend Karsten reacts to gross things. In college, if he thought of something gross, he would throw up. (laughs) Now clearly, if he smelled something gross, he'd have the same reaction, but it was the puking that resulted from thinking that proved to be the most entertaining. The funny thing is, Karsten is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. His brain is brilliant, but it was his weak stomach that made him famous on campus. If you were ever at a party that was boring, all you had to do was tell Carson a story about rotten food. And within minutes, the party was exciting again. It happened dozens of times. My favorite was the night we drove to the paper mill. Usually, if you didn't want Carson to throw up, you could talk him down, right? Like, if you berated him enough, oh, stop, that's not even gross, it smells fine, give me a break, Carson, right? He would calm down. But that wasn't going to work the night in Pensacola, Florida. It was really my fault. My friend Stu and I used to say, oh, that's a puker, if we would smell something bad when Carson wasn't with us. And it was kind of our way of saying Carson would puke if he ever smelled that. And months before the paper mill incident, Stu and I had driven by that exact spot and said to each other out loud at the same time, that's a puker. 
And by the time I tried, anyway, he talked about driving down the road with him later. Skip, skip, skip. By the time I, I tried to talk him down, it was too late. He was already dry heaving. I yelled at him. I pleaded with him. But the momentum was clearly not on my side. He grabbed an open bag of candy corn from the floorboard, put it over his mouth, in hopes that it would block out the smell. Since candy corn is so fragrant, I don't know. Uh, seconds later, he's screaming, it's getting through the corn! It's getting through the corn! Within minutes, we had to pull over on the side of the road so he could empty his stomach. I think about Karsten sometimes when I face temptation. He had a visceral, full body, completely committed response to things that he thought were gross. It wasn't soft. It wasn't casual. It was big and loud and final. His entire life stopped momentarily while he addressed an issue with every fiber of his being. And that reaction doesn't feel like how I respond to when I'm tempted with something. I will usually hold, on, hold the fire for a few minutes, he says. I'll usually explore just a little or taste just a tiny. I'll take my time. Sometimes I'll seek it out. I'll be the one setting up a tent in the parking lot of the paper mill, all while I'm pretending that I'm trying to avoid temptation. More often than I'd like to admit, I react to temptation a lot like I did in the eighth grade when I used to spend Saturdays at the dump, digging around in the trash, looking inside tractors in hopes of finding porn. There were even a few snowy days when I brought my sled, thinking that my parents would find it perfectly natural that I was sledding down mountains of trash. Although my approach to temptation is perhaps less obvious now than it was, uh, it, uh, now that I'm 32, it's often just as stupid. I create secret, I keep secrets, I create shadows, I try my best not to have a Karsten reaction to something that I know should make me sick. I hope God will show me how to throw up more. I hope that he'll give me a weaker stomach and a stronger heart. I hope that the next time you face temptation, you'll act like Karsten instead of going sledding at the dump. He calls that blog post, Slow Dancing with Temptation. And friends, run from sexual sin, learn to puke, Whatever you got to do. More on that in a second. Don't you realize, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Not only are you joined to God, which he'd said just a minute ago, but the Spirit of God dwells in you. And I find, I find this particularly helpful to remember when I'm thinking about sexual immorality. The Lord is with me at all times. Whenever I, whenever I dwell on what's in my mind, whenever I look at my phone or my computer, whenever I'm with my wife alone, when we were dating, when I was with her alone, the Lord was with us. You might not want to think about that. <laughs> but what do you believe instead? That you can hide from God? That he doesn't know what you think and what you do? This is really heavy, but here's the gist. Listen, sex, according to Paul, is more than just a physical need or hunger. It binds you to others and it binds you to God. If, if you only think sex is a physical need, if, you, if that's all you think it is, it's a hunger like the stomach earlier, like the Corinthians were thinking, like I'm hungry for food, sex, we have urges, we have needs, they just need to get satisfied in a way that has, literally it's the only ethic about sex in our culture today is consent. And, and publicly, we think it's utterly ridiculous that anybody would complain about anything as long as there is consent. If you only think it's a physical need, that it's somehow just a purely physical act that only relates to desire and satisfaction, I can understand, I really can, why you might think it's silly for God to want to keep that fire in the fireplace. Why doesn't God want me to have sex outside of marriage? Why, can I en why can't I enjoy sex like I enjoy donuts or back massages or a nap? 
If it's just physical pleasure between two consenting adults, that seems weird, right? Like if God said, you shall not enjoy lollipops until you make a lifelong commitment with another and with God. It's ridiculous and it seems so arbitrary. If, if sex is literally, and we, look, we all know it's not, but we talk this talk. It's just a physical thing. It's just a desire and a satisfaction, and if two people want to do it, what's the harm? What if it's more than that? What if it's not just the sexual equivalent of eating lunch, friends? What if it binds you to others in a deep, personal, and permanent way? Sex, by God's design, is not primarily a self-taking, it's a self-giving. And when you engage in sexual love with another, you are giving yourself to them. Men, each time you have sex with someone, you give yourself to them. You become one with them a little. Ladies, each time you have sex with someone, you give yourself to them and you become one with them a little. God designed sex as a way to give ourselves to another and become one with them. It's so like him because God is all about love. And you know how love, love is not something that he leaves up to us to define, by the way. It is defined by looking at Jesus and he tells us, love like I loved. Give your life away for the sake of others' worth. So too at the center of a marriage. Sex is intended to be a self-giving, not a, self, not a mutual self-taking a self-giving. When we talk about marriage and divorce next week, you're going to see that more, but, but if, if sexual love isn't just about pleasure, it's about oneness and giving yourself to another. And if it's actually about that, can you begin to see why it might be a good idea to keep it in the fireplace? But Paul says that we should flee from sexual morality because of how powerful and how effective it is. Not because God just has like these weird uh, traditional preferences it's some kind of table manners or something, or bedroom manners, I don't know. Uh, I'm table manners, I guess, I don't know. Uh, the, the phrase sexual morality, listen, the phrase sexual morality comes from a Greek word. If you're looking at this text and you actually looked up the Greek word, it's porneia, which sounds like what? Porn, some of you have heard of that, good. Um, right, porneia, sounds like porn, that's where we get our, our, our modern word porn or pornography, uh, porneia, um, it literally means to twist something, that's what, that's what uh, porneia means, it's the twisting of a thing, to use, which means this, right, to use something for its unnatural or unintended purpose. And, and when it applies to sex, it means anytime sex is used for a purpose other than what it was made for. So when sex is used for a purpose other than what it's made for, it's sexual porneia, if that makes sense, okay? You with me? That's sexual immorality. It covers a multitude of sins. I don't know. I shouldn't do that. That's what love does. Uh, but, uh, but, but when you read sexual immorality, it literally means anything. You do have to read some context to figure out what Paul's talking about in some ways. But it, it covers everything that's not sex the way God designed it. God made sex good, and when it's twisted in its use, it's porneia. Interestingly, many Christians over the years have remarked that Satan and his forces have never actually created anything. They've only twisted the good that's already there. Satan can't and doesn't create, he twists. God made sex good, Satan twists it. C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, remarking on this idea, argues, I love this language, that the whole world is under a nasty spell and Jesus is unweaving the curse. 
Sex is good. Sexual immorality is porneia. It's the twisted use of sex. It's anytime sex is used for something other than its intended purpose. And by, by this point, from last week until now, I hope you've locked in on this, that the scriptures, the church too, I hope, argues that sex is intended for the uniting, the reuniting, the pleasure, and the creation of life for a married couple. It's not just the sexual lunch. It's not just another bodily organ that's hungry. It's loaded with purpose and incredibly powerful, which is why the woman in Song of Songs says it is like a raging fire with sparks. It is, it's as strong as death. Outside of the lifelong commitment of marriage, it's a fire that's loose in your house and many waters cannot quench it. If it gets loose out of that context, it will wreak havoc. Now look, I know many of you or many of us in this room have our guard up in these conversations where defenses are up, but can we just level with each other for just a minute, okay? Just, just, just reason with me for a minute. How much damage is caused in the world by the twisting of the good and powerful gift of sex? Imagine a world, actually try to imagine a world where no one was abused sexually, where no one was raped, where no one cheated on anyone, where men and women and children weren't lusted after and objectified, where no one slept with you unless they committed themselves to you body and soul. Are you telling me that wouldn't be a better world? If we weren't mastered by our hungers, if we weren't enslaved to our appetites and justifying them by saying, I got needs, and this person said yes, but instead we mastered our own hungers and desires and used them for the purpose of love, that wouldn't be a better world? Look, if you're having sex outside of marriage, you're giving yourself in small deposits to another person. You are becoming one with them, and you can't get that back. Not only that, but by gaining their consent, this is what gets to really get under my skin, by gaining their consent and asking them to participate in what you're doing, you're asking them to give some of themselves to you with no commitment to back it up. And now you might say, because some of you are, this isn't, um, this isn't uh, you know, the, the fire island weekend party thing, whatever that is. This is a, a, a college ministry room, and so the average person in this room probably isn't. Uh, some of you might be, and, and, and I apologize if this magnifies shame inappropriately in certain ways, but many of you in this room, when I talk to you, it's not that you're trying to sleep around all the time. When you're, when you're having sex or thinking about having sex um, a lot, it's usually in the context of you being in a pretty committed relationship with somebody. It's usually that. So you might say, well, I want to marry them. I would say, fine, prove it. <laughs> um, uh, you think I'm ever going to be cool with some Jack Weasel sleeping with my daughter and telling me that he really loves her? You think I'm ever going to be cool with that? You don't understand Mr. Leonard because that's who he's going to call me or Pastor Leonard. He won't. Uh, I'm, a, I'm technically a priest, so he won't, but I won't let him call me father. Uh, no way. No way. No way, <laughs> okay? But if he's like, you don't understand, I really, really love your daughter, no way am I going to be cool with that. Or he wants to marry her someday, I would say prove it, marry her. If you're man enough to sleep with her, to give yourself to her, to be united with her, to ask her to give herself to you, then be man enough to make it honest. Stand up in front of me, stand up in front of God, in front of your community and hers, and swear your life to her so she knows that you're safe. 
So she knows that, she, that, that her love can be awakened because you're going to be there with her until you die, dude. If you do that, she says, yes, I are you cool? Some of you maybe, and this is maybe a strange take on it, y'all, but I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of thinking things this way, right? Some of you may wish that your sexual desire wasn't so strong. Maybe if it's, a, uh, maybe, you, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to have a romance and you keep wanting to push boundaries, to go farther. Maybe you're having sex and you wish you wouldn't have sex, those kinds of things, and you're going, ah, I wish I could just do away with this. I want to suggest something to you. What if it's supposed to be really strong? To encourage you to make decisions really quickly? And to stop slow dancing with everybody. (laughs) You're messing with your body and theirs and the ways you're giving yourselves to each other. Look, I I know it's not like cool to say in our culture today, but I, I, look, our culture is going to (laughs) change. In a hundred years from now, we're not going to believe the same things we believe today. Um, And the word of the Lord lasts forever. Um, And what Paul has to say is if you're burning with sexual passion, just get married. And I don't, I actually don't, I think Paul's so genius, I think the word of God is so genius, that Paul isn't actually recommending that you get married, he just thinks that if you actually have that conversation, you'll make a freaking decision, rather than slow dancing with this person for the next two years. Ladies, if you want me to write that down for your boyfriends, um, I can't. You too though, ladies. Look, I wanna, uh, we're going to wrap this up by looking at Matthew chapter 7 real quick. So, Keely, will you put this up? Um, I want to try to touch on porn. My notes get a little blurry from here on out, so we're going to see how this ends. Um, this is from Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see Jesus' language about sexual morality here. Um, uh, and, friends, if I can encourage you, uh, there, there might be like less than four or five passages of Scripture that are probably more important for you to be familiar with than Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's, it's affectionately called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I encourage you to meditate on it, to share it, to, to become familiar with it. This is from that section. Um, it's actually Matthew chapter 5. I put chapter 7. That's my bad. But if you're trying to find it, I'm not lying to you. It's just chapter 5. Um, you have heard the commandment, Jesus says. You've heard the commandment that you must not commit adultery. Does anybody know where that comes from? The Ten Commandments. Right, right. So Jesus is talking to a group of people who would be familiar with the Ten Commandments. And God, and, and we believe Jesus himself. This is a fascinating move. Because Jesus is like, you've heard it said... I said it. Uh, you shouldn't, you, like, do not commit adultery. But I say, and this is one of, the, one of the many ways Jesus equates himself with God, right? If God said this, but I said, listen how audacious that is, right? But you know, I know the Bible says this, listen to what I say. Y'all, if I say that at the house, leave. Don't ever come back. I'm actually dead, if I say the Bible says this, but let me tell you what I say. Literally get up, you can say heretic, and then walk out. Okay, no, for real, that would, you would be doing good work doing that. Don't ever let somebody teach you from the Bible say that. Jesus does, anyway. Uh, I dare you to call him a heretic. Okay, um, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, so, so the text actually says your right eye or your right hand, but the intention there in their culture is your good, if the strongest one, right? If you've got a choice, the strongest one. Um, so if your eye, even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And you should know Jesus talks about hell more than anybody. <laughs> um, and if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. This is so intense. 
on purpose. Jesus knows what he's doing. I mean, you see how serious Jesus is about this, right? Like, if you're, if you're, if you're sinning in this way, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, right? Puke. <laughs> Don't slow dance. Although that's not even as dramatic as Jesus here. According to Jesus, sexual sin is not something to mess around with. It's something to flee from, to resist, to fight against, to take drastic action about. When Paul says, run from sexual immorality, he would have a fan in Jesus. Now, on its head, I want you to notice how Jesus, that uh, his command protects women. Lust is when you want something for yourself, friends. That's what, you can lust after anything by just wanting something for yourself. Lusting after somebody else sexually means that you want them for yourself. I want you from, from, to satisfy my hungers, my pleasures. That's not love. That's not love. That's not the intended context for sex or sexual desire the way God designed it. Remember that he designed sex to be a self-giving thing, not a self-taking thing. And so if you're looking at another person and you want them for yourself to gratify your sexual desires, that's lust. Whether that means you're just, uh, you, you know, taking sexual pleasure from looking at them or you're imagining things with them or you're planning on how to gain their consent for the sake of yourself, that is lust. And Jesus' words here are really specific, and I think this is really important, especially for you gentlemen, and statistically it looks like about 20% of you ladies. I, I, really, I, I, I want you to pay attention to these words here. It's not just looking at someone with lust, it's looking at someone with the intent to lust. The reality is, friends, sexual arousal and desire, it's a thing that happens in life. Over and over again, from at least the time of Augustine until now, I mean, Christians have reflected on this for you. Look, look, if you haven't realized this, um, that something that happens in life is sometimes you get sexually aroused. You get stirred up. You're interested, whatever. And, and a really simple way of trying to, it's a little bit reductionistic, but I think this might be helpful in terms of being able to remember this point, okay? That you may not be able to do anything about your first look, but you can do something about your second. Do you understand that distinction? You may not be able to do anything about your first look, but you can do something about your second. Are you breaking your neck to get a look? Are you opening up Instagram or Tinder or selecting certain videos online to look, or looking at pictures online with the intent to possess whatever's there for your own gratification? Jesus said it would be better to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. Now, on its head, I want you to notice Jesus is fighting for women. He wants to protect women from men preying on them in their minds and in their hearts and in their hungers. And I, I just, I, over and over again, the stories of women who have felt unsafe, who've been unsafe, because of the way men lust after them. Many of you ladies in this room, maybe all of you in this room, know that in a way that guys don't. And guys, even if a woman's looking at you lustfully, the way our culture is structured, there's other kinds of privilege, not just white you're not threatened often. You aren't worried about power. Like, I remember, I remember my wife, uh, and, and she, and actually every girl I dated at one point or another talked to me about how they would have nightmares about walking certain places in cities and, and being abducted and getting raped. I've, I know that there's got to be guys who fear that. I've just never talked to one. Now, you, you might be there in this room. It's statistically overwhelming how many women actually fear that and think about that. And Jesus is saying, he's targeting men. 
in this passage. Men, they are not yours. They are not yours. They are not yours to prey upon in your minds or your hearts or your hungers. They do not exist for your sexual pleasure. They do not exist for your imaginations. Quite frankly, because they belong to God, they don't even have the right to give their own consent to that. If you are willing to commit your life to a woman before God and others, and she's willing to commit her life to you, and God says yes, then that's the fireplace for the fire. That's the context within you might enjoy sex, but outside of that, it isn't loving or safe. And women, I want you to know that that, that passage of Scripture, that command of Jesus, uh, of all the passages of Scripture, that might be the one that's most impossible for men to believe. It can happen. That most men, I mean, truly, um, when we read things like do not anger, keep your oaths, pray in secret, store up treasures in heaven, that it's very likely that a, lot, that a lot of people with a pretty good temperament on a good day are looking at some of the stuff Jesus says and they're like, yeah, I can, maybe, maybe. If God does a really good work in my life, maybe. But most men come across that verse and it's just like, that's, feels, it, it felt hard when I was young and now with a hundred billion dollars after you. It feels almost impossible for most of you men. And then ladies, I want you to know that that is a really, really hard thing for a lot of men. Men, I want to tell you, Jesus wouldn't have said it if it wasn't possible to redeem. And I want to tell you, do not give up. I, I mean, I talk to so many men who have a big turning point in their life when they stop saying, I want to get better with lust. I want to stop looking at porn. And there's a corner that's turned when they say, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. And I need help. And I don't know if, you've, I don't know if you realize this, friends. The, the, the journey of the Christian life, always, it always begins for us, at least at our moment of involvement. It actually begins earlier than we're aware of it. Um, but our journey always begins with, uh, with a sort of epiphany and then confession. God has been at work doing good things in our lives before we've ever confessed. We are told by the, by the scriptures that we wouldn't even have the, the ability, the, the presence, the, the awareness to confess our sins if the Holy Spirit had not drawn near to us in the first place. Do you know that? The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. Which means if you are in a moment and, and you think, oh my gosh, I feel convicted of sin, there, at that moment, there is no distance between you and God. Even though you haven't repented yet. Even though you haven't confessed yet. Because the way this works, is, this is all tethered in the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't draw near to you because you finally confessed your sins and repented. He came to you while you are dead in your sins. Dead in your sins. Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. You can repent now. Because you don't have to make up this gap anymore. Do you understand that distinction? This is pretty huge, especially as it relates to sexual immorality, because many of you are so crushed by shame that you think you have to slog through years of recovery in order to draw near to the presence of God again. That is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. You might have habits that are going to take years to retrain, okay? You, you, really, you really might, friends. If you don't, you should look up neuroplasticity. Do you guys all know about that? Thank you. I got a friend in the back uh, who's been laughing at my jokes and everything. It's been nice. Thank you. Uh, now listen, you guys might have years of training habits or whatever, but in terms of God loving you and drawing close to you, 
the Holy, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, which means if you are even feeling conviction, God is near and with you now. So any voice, the, the voice of the accuser who says he can't love you, he can't draw near to you, there's no hope for you, that's a lie because you wouldn't even be convicted if he hadn't drawn close to you already. Do you understand that, how powerful that is? Jesus would not have said this verse, men, I'm talking to you specifically, he would not have said it if he did not think it was possible to redeem you. There are many people that abstain from pornography, that abstain from sex, and sometimes I, we, we make the mistake of talking about it like the battle's already been won. And it hasn't. We're just believing lies. Look, I gotta wrap this up. This is going long. Next week, we're gonna talk about marriage and divorce, and it's gonna get real there too. Um, I've got some stuff specifically to say to you women in regards to that, but... Let me end tonight with, with this and we'll come to the Lord's table. Um, friends, there is real hope for redemption in Jesus. One of my uh, favorite, it's, it's a heartbreaking story to read, but one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament comes out of Ezekiel and God talks about his people, the community of his people, and he compares them uh, there's this story of their life told in a parable form, and he, he compares them first to a baby that was uh, sort of born and left in blood and afterbirth on the floor. And it was dead, not dying, dead. And God said, I walked up to you, and I looked at you, and I, I loved you, and I said, live. And you came to life. And then I cleaned you up. I'm paraphrasing. I cleaned you up and I adorned you. Is it Ezekiel 17? Does anybody know? 17? Is that right? You guys are going to want to look it up. I don't know. Somebody look it up while I'm, while I'm talking. Uh, I think it's Ezekiel 17 or 34, one of the two. Anyway, um, so uh, the, th- this, he, he, he tells this child who's in its blood dead, live. And then he cleans it up and then he adorns it. Gives it clothing and, and, and dresses and jewelry and, and, and makes it, he makes this child beautiful and says he raises her up to be absolutely gorgeous. And then we you know what she does? She whores herself out to everybody. <laughs> Seriously, that's like what it says. But then God comes in that whole story, God says, and this is the story of the way God is with his people. I will allure her still. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not, there is, if a million chances would do, I'm going to give them. Friends, I don't know why you think you're here tonight. I know that we live corporately, and I don't know the individual stories of all of you. I know some of you. We live corporately in a culture that is sick with sexual sin. Sick with it. It's, I've been a victim and a perpetrator. Everybody I know has been victimized by this at least most people I know have perpetrated in, in these ways, in significant ways, through porn, through uh, so, something like that, cheating on other people, through rampant lust, the infidelity that exists in our families. You know, there's practices for me that are really helpful to just sort of open my eyes and make me awake to how gross it all is. And it has to do with imagining people I love in any of these situations. Imagining my sister, my daughter, my mother in a relationship with some other guy. Imagining walking into the house and seeing my dad look at porn. Is that innocuous? Is that not a big deal? Or do I know in my bones what I don't know how to profess in the culture? That it's revolting. 
that it's twisted, that it's porneia. Like we're sick with this in our culture, and I'm tired of it, friends. And Jesus says, flee from it. And as a group of people, you guys are sitting in this room tonight, and I don't know if you, I mean, I hope you know this, but you're sitting in this room tonight, and everybody out here associates you with Christians. People on this campus don't think of me when they think of the house or they think of Christians. They think of you. And I want to see our culture change. I want us to change. I want us to believe in the hope that Jesus has extended to us, and not just that we are forgiven people, but that He actually makes us better. That we would become a people who love. Even when Paul wrote this letter, he uses past tense perfect language to say, you were bought with a price. You have been redeemed already. It's done. It's done. Paul's not saying this to magnify shame. He's saying all of the things that you want in sex, all of the desires you're trying to satisfy with your lust, those are intended to be satisfied in God's timing by God himself through the means he decides to use. You are his, and let him lead you. I gotta gotta just pray for us. I'm gonna keep going. Let's just pray, and we'll go to the table. Father, um, Send your spirit, please, to help us believe that it's possible to change. For those of us that are, are caught in, in addictions which have eaten away at our soul and hollowed us out, give us hope that you can breathe new life into us, that you can say live. For those of us in this room who are so, just so wounded by sexual sin, May we be comforted by how much you fight for sexual purity. May we be comforted by the fact that you, there's nothing that happens you don't know about and everything will give an account to you. Oh, Lord, I pray that your church becomes more and more, and more into the image of your Son every time we, we, we talk about these things from your Scripture. Lord, we, we pray against the cultural tilt right now that enslaves so many around the world. We pray against the ways in which we're enslaved in this room. Lord, help us, please. Give us, even tonight, send your spirit to convict us and remind us that you've drawn close to us and help us to know what it might mean for us to take a step in the direction of health, in the direction of Christ-likeness. Teach us, for some of us, how to flee right now. What is a way that we can flee from sexual immorality? Help us. Lord, have mercy on us, please. We are sinners. That is not the whole truth about us, God. We are beloved sinners. You made us and you love us. Save us still, Lord, and come quick. In Jesus' name, amen.